This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 40 years now. They're an activist, solutions-oriented publisher focused on bringing you tools for a world of change. They've now published over 600 books available both in print and ebooks, as well as an increasing library of audiobook selection as well. They care deeply about both what they publish and how they do business, and so the same thinker and doer approach permeates their in-house work and the books themselves. A certified B Corporation, they print on 100% post-consumer recycled paper, and they are carbon neutral, and they print only in North America, never offshore. And that's just the company themselves. Most importantly, they've got the best selection of books that you need to build your own regenerative ecological or community-based projects. You can check out their full list of titles now at newsociety.com. Hey there, everybody, and welcome back. Now, I've been looking forward to today's session for a good couple months now. Though it's been years since I got excited about seed saving and heard the first little bits of the ideas around land-based gardening, I only recently got a window into its real potential. I honestly feel a little embarrassed that I didn't know more about land-based plant breeding until recently, since it's the reason we have pretty much all of the domesticated and semi-domesticated varieties of food that you can find all over the world. It also turns out to be an incredibly approachable practice that throws out the traditional rulebook of plant breeding with all of its meticulous adherence to detailed record keeping, isolation distances, and inbreeding. But instead of hearing about it from me, let me introduce you to Joseph Lofthouse. Now, Joseph adopted the principles of land race gardening in response to the harsh growing conditions in a high altitude, short season, desert garden. Instead of relying on expensive poisons and labor and materials to coddle the plants, he instead encourages genetic diversity, cross-pollination, and survival of the fittest, allowing the plants to adapt themselves to the current and ever-changing ecosystem, thus simplifying gardening and seed saving. Joseph is the author of Land Race Gardening, Food Security Through Biodiversity and Promiscuous Pollination, and he was kind enough to send me a copy ahead of this interview. Now, I don't always have the chance to read the books that get sent to me by publishers and authors in their entirety, but I have to admit that I ate this one up and I fully got through it cover to cover. In our conversation today, Joseph and I started by uncovering his personal pathway as a farmer early on and the failures and the frustrations with seeds available in the stores that led him to experiment with land race growing. Now, not only does Joseph face many challenges in the high desert environment up at more than 5,000 feet of elevation in Utah, but he also practices what he calls vacant lot farming, which quite literally means that he's farming on abandoned plots of poor soil. So from there, we get more technical by clarifying the difference between an heirloom variety, a hybrid, open pollination, and a land race, and why it's so important for us as growers to move away from the industrialization of seeds and plant breeding. We also wanted to expand the initial knowledge around the basic concepts of land race gardening that we explored a couple of weeks ago on this show in an interview with Julia Dakin, who is a collaborator of Joseph's. Together, they created the Going to Seed Network and free online course platform to promote land race growing and seed sharing. In that interview, we covered a lot of the practical information and the basics, and so I will recommend that you go back and listen to it in case we've skipped any of the essentials in this session. 
So building on that previous interview, we dug into some of Joseph's personal experiences and stories from trialing hundreds of land race projects on his farm and some of the truly unique findings and evolutions that he's witnessed. He also offers essential insights into not only the tips and the tricks that have led to his successful breeds, but also the mindset and the expectations that have helped him remain open to unexpected outcomes and the patience that's required for growing and reproduction cycles. Now, touching on a deep interest of mine within this broader topic, we also navigate the challenges and the potential of land race trees and perennial crops. Joseph has a close family connection to walnut breeding, and he shares insights into the legacy work that this practice is for him. So over almost seven years of listening to different ideas and practices from so many people all over the world, I've identified a few that, for me at least, hold the most potential in various aspects of ecological restoration and regenerative growing practices. For example, working to restore the hydrological function of a landscape can yield outsized results in the amount of time and resources that you put into it in the long term. Capturing and propagating indigenous microorganisms has an outside impact on long-term soil regeneration. Landrace gardening looks at the challenge of growing food in diverse conditions and ever-changing variables and switches the narrative from how do we manipulate the environment to make it conducive to grow ever more narrow plant genetics to how do we increase and promote the plant and animal genetics to become resilient to both the challenges of our current growing conditions and the ever-growing variables that the future will bring. These are the efforts that every grower around the world, both knowingly and unknowingly, contributed to in order to produce food in the past, and I believe it's essential for agricultures to embrace them once again. So with that little editorial contribution, I'll hand things over now to Joseph Lofthouse. Joseph, thanks so much for taking time to be here. It's such a pleasure to finally speak with you after recently finishing your book, Land Race Gardening. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing good, Oliver. How are you? I'm doing really well. It's a sunny day in July. We recently got some rain, which was much needed, and things are looking green and lush here at the farm. How's your growing season going? Um, it's a really good growing season this year. I'm not distracted by other things, and we have plenty of water this year, so it's a great growing season for me. Um, few helpers showed up, so that encourages me to get out in the garden and really have a good time. Oh, it's always nice when there's people around to, to share the load. <laughs> yeah. So, Joseph, you're known mostly, at least as far as I know you, as a modern pioneer of land race gardening, which is a very ancient practice. But I'm curious how you found your way into this style of farming. So I was a market farmer, and I was just growing plain old boring uh, sweet corn. You know, the hybrid that my daddy had grown for decades and I just continued to grow it and I was looking around saying I wonder what I could grow that would be exciting for my customers at farmers market and what I found was a sweet corn variety out of Indiana which had reds and yellows and oranges and blues all mixed up on the same cob or on different cobs and that was my first introduction to a landrace variety, and I just fell in love with it. It grew rambunctiously for me, and the flavors were just awesome because every color in there is a different flavor, and it 
just was really pleasing to me. And after I grew that crop, I said that I was going to convert every variety that I grow into that kind of, of land race crop. And I never looked back. <laughs> That's super exciting. Now, I just learned this as we were speaking before we started recording here. But tell our listeners a bit about the unique situation in which you're farming in, both in the geographical location, the climate you're dealing with, and also the farm and soil conditions that you've chosen for yourself. So I grow at an elevation of 5,000 feet, high up in the mountains. Um, we have mountains that are 10,000 feet tall that are a mile or two from my garden three miles whatever it is and so all summer long the cold air comes at, down out of those mountains into my fields and so when I plant warm weather crops like tomatoes or peppers or any of the squashes and I buy the seeds from the seed company they tend to fail for me because my conditions are super arid desert and that high elevation and the brilliant sunlight and so it was, it was just so unreliable for me to plant things that I got cause from, from the seed catalogs. Because if I got a hybrid, then the hybrids are bred for using chemicals and all that sort of stuff. And I don't want to use those and poison my people. And so those failed for me. And the heirlooms are varieties that were developed for far away and long ago and in climates that are totally unlike mine and so they would fail and so i really had a difficult time growing for market and so when i grew this corn and it just thrived for me and i planted that corn on the same day that i planted my normal hybrid and my hybrid germinated at like five percent and and it was just you know, it was just a dramatic difference. And, and so that's, that was what convinced me to convert. And what I found is that if I allowed crops that are genetically diverse to cross pollinate with each other, that they can figure out for themselves what works in my garden, because they can change, switch all of their genes up and, um, really figure it out for themselves so I don't have to get in the middle of trying to control you know all that stuff about the plants yeah and also which genetic information to turn on and off right the, the epigenetic mm -hmm. triggers that allow it to flourish even in harsh conditions like you're working with now you also told me that you are farming on vacant lots I mean yes. people are often <laughs> always worried about how to improve the soil and how to get the most microbiology working underneath your feet. And you seem to be chucking all that out the window and really cultivating on some of the harshest conditions that one would normally stray away from, especially if your livelihood is somewhat dependent on it. How did this start and how have you dealt with those harsh conditions? Um, so what I find is that it, it's easier for me to change the genetics of the plants that I'm growing because they can change them themselves than it is for me to change the soil. Because when I start putting uh, inputs into the soil, whether it's my labor or my 
materials, that gets really expensive. And, and I just can't afford all those inputs. And so I let the plants take care of themselves. Of course, I grow a lot of weeds and the weeds go back into the soil right where they grew for the soil fertility. But I'm not, you know, doing the labor to make compost and drag the compost out of my garden and drag it back in. And I'm not paying for fertilizers because the plants can adjust to whatever the growing conditions are. And if I'm growing in straight sands down in Florida, the plants adapt to that. Uh, up in my place, I grow in clay. The plants adapt to that um, if they have the genetic diversity to start with. And that's where the point is. Yeah, so they got to have genetic diversity, and they got to be cross-pollinating, and then then they can figure out for themselves how to how to thrive in my conditions, whatever those happen to be. So and, seem like basic criteria for any seed, and yet that's surprisingly hard to find from seed at the store. <laughs> right? So many well, of our normal cultivars have had this basic ability to swap genetic information bred out of them for various reasons. Right. Well, about 60 years ago, um, something switched in the seed industry and the industry decided that they were going to inbreed everything as much as possible uh, for the sake of uniformity or whatever it was. Um, probably what happened is that after World War II, the chemical companies or the, the explosive manufacturers had a these big facilities for de, for making explosives and those are nitrates and they says oh we could maybe put these on fertilizer and call it good for the plants and so the whole genetics of what we were growing changed at that time in order to make the plants dependent on the on the nitrates and so anyway it, and then to maintain that, you have to do inbreeding. And so we've spent 60 years inbreeding plants and throwing away all of the information they had in their genetics about how to deal with bugs and low soil fertility and uh, whatever else it was they were dealing with. And so it was just a choice that somebody, that a, a people made a long time ago and now we're paying the consequences of that. Indeed, indeed. I mean, there's so deep we could go into to the uh, the narrowing of the genetic pool in what we eat, as well as efforts to control genetic information and profit from it. But that's a topic for another. <laughs> um, I spoke about that recently at a local garden club. And yeah. oh my, was I fierce and, and bold in, in that talk. <laughs> Well, we'll get you back for that one on another round. But for now, you were talking about how it's easier to work with the intelligence that's in the genetics of the plants so that they can learn to adapt to the conditions rather than all of the effort and the cost required to adapt the conditions to them. Right. Good point to that might, someone might say, well, it takes quite a while for them to go through a breeding season. You can't always be sure if they've crossed successfully when you just look at a seed. And, you know, it does require some patience for this adaptation to start to happen. 
what is a realistic time frame to start to see the benefits of this way of breeding crops and having them adapt themselves to your circumstances? So one of the one of the methods that I like to do to develop new crops is I'll get 10 or 20, 30 varieties and do trials on them, plant them all side by side. And what I find is that first year, 75% of them will fail. They just, they won't germinate. They germinate and they don't grow. They germinate and they don't mature fruits. And so immediately the first year there's a 75% failure rate but they cross pollinate and the second year there will be a few plants out of there that really thrive in my garden and most of them will be just mediocre and then that third generation they just explode and they thrive and so I think of the third generation of the as the magical year and um, so if you're growing something like carrots, it ends up being six calendar years, but it's mm -hmm. only three generations. Sure. Um, but the, the annuals, the third year is really the one that where things thrive for me. Right. You mean carrots because they flower and, and give seed in the second year. So with biannuals, Correct. it's not necessarily the year, it's the breeding cycle. And if that takes two years, then it's doubled. Yeah. Yes, and then when we start working with trees and that breeding cycle is 10 years or 15 years or five years, you know, that's, that stretches it out. But that's still within the, um, the lifetime of a young person like you. <laughs> um, so I'm working on a walnut breeding project that my family's been working on for the last 40 years. And I'm currently planting seeds of the, let's see, one, two, of the fourth generation, wow. you know, so, so within a, in a family or in a community, uh, tree breeding is really accessible. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I learned about tree breeding is people die, they move, they, get divorced, they change jobs, and whatever trees I had planted on their place are gone. Mm. And so I just watch the trees and 15 years later, I knock on somebody's door and I say, can I have seeds from this breeding project I've been working on that's growing in your yard? And that has worked really well. Yeah. Um, like I was taking tree seedlings to farmer's market and just, you know, sending hundreds of of trees into the community and a lot of them die a lot of them go to places that i'll never see again but a lot of them i know where they are and so it's just been a beautiful journey growing that as a community rather than as just one farmer you know on one field yeah yeah and this is something that not only was really inspiring from the book, but I'm curious to know maybe some more stories from your side is how important community is to these land race projects and what the potential can be when you collaborate with a larger group of people and even multi-generations to work towards finding the adaptability, the, the traits, the flavors, the nutrients, that could come out of these over a period of time and with the collaboration of a whole group. 
Um, I think that community is very important when we start growing land race style because our local ecosystem has some characteristics that apply across all of the all of the all of my neighbors for example the elevation the low humidity and then there's other traits that vary a little bit the soil some people might have more clay soil and more sandy soil and and then there's just the social um interactions and the human frailties because people get sick i get sick i lose varieties i misplace stuff um, people have fires and floods and you know but if the seed is widely spread through the community then it's easy to recover that seed and and also the cultivars get stronger because lots of different people doing lots of different things in different ways, but there's still that underlying uh, security and stability of, you know, the general climate. Yeah. And so, it, um, and like when I go to farmer's market and I take squash or melons, I have a standing request of my customers that if they find anything that they really love the flavor of that they bring it back to me mm. or they bring seeds back to me you know and so that gets my um, plant breeding network if you want to call it that it extends to you know hundreds of people that are trialing these things for me and bringing stuff back to me and and so that's that really helps me not to have to taste every single squash or every okay. single melon. You, you know, I can just send them out into the community and I can only come back to it does for relationships with your customers as well. They're a mm -hmm. part of the evolution of their favorite things. Right. And I'm working on a tomato project where we cross some wild tomatoes. And what we're finding is the flavors are fruity and and you and with flavors like guava and melon and plum and so the feedback that the the customers neighbors are given about those tomatoes have dramatically changed the where the project is going yeah yeah like like we we ended up selecting mostly for orange tomatoes um one day at a taste testing party um i snuck a domestic tomato into our trials and after i cut the domestic tomato the host went to his kitchen and he got a rag and he came and he washed the cutting board off because he <laughs> didn't want to contaminate the flavor <laughs> that's a pretty strong no i would guess <laughs> yeah well another aspect of this community effort at improving these varieties is that not everybody has the same taste and preferences and right. some may be selecting for a certain preference of their own maybe they like a little sourness in there or prefer a little bitterness that others don't and together everybody gets a little of what they want as well as adapting it to even the microclimate aspects even if the broader pattern of the conditions that they're growing in might be the same uh, for for example, I'm not going to select for a red tomato, yeah. but 
some of my collaborators are, and that'll make some wonderful hot sauce for them later on, <laughs> you know, but, but, but still there's that underlying, uh, cooperation that the plants have going on and that we have going on as a community. Well, and the importance is that the genetic line remains open, I assume, so that if yeah. you were to cross them at some point, their ability to cross and exchange genetics is far more likely than if you were to bring in a domesticated or an heirloom variety into that mix, right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, so let's clarify that now, because you do a very good job of defining this in your book. But let's talk about hybrids, uh, heirlooms. And land races, <laughs> and what the difference those are, because it was a little confusing. So, let's start with definition of a land race. A land race is a variety that is genetically diverse and promiscuously pollinating. So that's the traditional way that crops have been grown for as long as humans have been growing crops. And what that allows is it allows the plants to undergo survival of the fittest selection for current local conditions. And so about 60 years ago, people started focusing on inbreeding. And so they found a variety that they liked and then they crossed it with itself so that it became inbred. And what that does is it makes it distinct, uniform, and stable. But the problem with that is it's also lost genetic diversity. And so my definition of an heirloom is a variety that was developed for far away and long ago. You know, it was, it was developed on Reed's farm out in Indiana and it's perfectly suited to Indiana. But when it comes to my place and the conditions are radically different, then it doesn't thrive for me. And so what a hybrid is, is you take two of those inbred varieties that don't grow very well together and you cross them. And they do 50% better than the two inbred parents did. <laughs> and they call that a hybrid. Yeah, yeah, but it's still um, severely diminished in its capacity. Yeah, but it, the hybrids are still super inbred, and thus they look exactly the same. Every plant is essentially a clone of every other plant in the garden. And so when a disease comes in and overcomes the defenses of one plant, it overcomes the defenses of the entire country's uh variety or you know the entire country's worth of that variety <laughs> yeah and and so then we have a variety which is called open pollinated and you know that has the the feeling in your heart of oh it's crossing and blah 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 but no the seed industry does everything they can to make sure that those open pollinated varieties are super inbred you know how does that work is it a matter of uh, distance so that they can isolation can isolation and yeah and so <laughs> so it's like a mind trick that they're playing on us <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like free range chickens that see the light once or twice a day uh-huh but exactly the same kind of scenario yeah, yeah, yeah. marketing <laughs> trickery sure 
And so you are seeing a ton of different characteristics come out of these land-based varieties beyond just the end product of the fruit or the leaf or the thing that you eat or market. You're seeing behaviors and characteristics that have shown you adaptability beyond just the final product. Can you talk about some of those other emergent properties? Well, we'll see, there, there are some things that I really care about. The first thing that I care about is productivity. If I want a variety that's going to be, that's going to thrive in my garden. And then the second criteria that I have is I want something that tastes wonderful. You know, and so if I have high productivity and I have wonderful taste, then I can let every other trait float. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes I inadvertently select for things like, um, one time I was going to farmer's market and a lady asked me why my tomatoes weren't covered with dirt because I just grow sprawling on the ground. I don't trellis, you know, I don't prune. I just plant a tomato in the ground and let it grow wherever it wants to grow. I pick it and take it to market. Well, she asked me why my tomatoes weren't all muddy, just sprawling on the ground. And I'm like, I don't know. And so next time I, I picked, I looked at the tomatoes and the plants had developed a trait where the plant grows like an arching vine so that it keeps the tomatoes up off the ground. Because I don't want to save seeds from tomatoes that are down in the dirt and all yucky. And, and so I had inadvertently been selecting for clean tomatoes and the plants had figured out a way to give me clean tomatoes. You know, and, and that same sort of thing, like I grow a weed in my garden that that is preferred by the Colorado potato beetle, which eats any of the selenum species like the tomatoes, the eggplants, the peppers, um, but not in my garden, because anytime I see those bugs on a, on a domestic plant I kill the bug and if it happens a second time I kill the plant mm. and so so I made the population of the bugs and the plants so that they cooperate together and and the bugs eat you know eat their species and I eat my species <laughs> yeah, yeah I remember that from the book I thought that was brilliant it really flies in the face of this pest and disease need to be eradicated into one of they can cooperate they can actually help me out in two ways they can get rid of the weeds and favor the ones that i'm trying to grow through that selection over time it's brilliant right well uh, another example of that is i allowed a lady to have some space in my garden one year and so she just bought a seed out of the seed catalog and planted it and the squash bugs like thousands of squash bugs came and descended on that squash and just devoured it. And I'm like, I never have squash bugs. And you know, my, my plants were side by side with hers and there was no squash bugs. And it's like, you know, the squash bugs in my, in my squash have figured out a way to uh, collaborate with each other and both live happily in the ecosystem without whatever was going on with her squash <laughs> and i know it's not 
nice to uh, feel glee at other people's misfortune. <laughs> but it was really delightful to see that, you know, this sort of land race growing and happy-go-lucky approach to the insects really paid off. Well, it's such a stark example of the fact that it's not a fluke, that the genetics really do matter there and have created a collaborative and non-intrusive way of co-inhabiting with what we would otherwise call pests. And the plants that don't have this adaptation do not do well there. Right. Yeah. And this makes me think back to what we were talking about of, you know, just having the initial patience to get to that magic third year or third reproduction cycle. So you really start to see the adaptation flourish in your place and how one might be able to shortcut that. I mean, if you only have access to store-bought seeds, that would definitely be your minimum. And you're probably going to have very low cross rates, at least initially and certain varieties may not cross at all or even have the ability to do so. But there is access, and this goes back to the importance of community, of being able to get seeds from neighbors or from cooperatives or from initiatives that have been saving seed in your area, maybe even not you know, your garden specifically, but close enough that it's relevant and that have the genetic diversity to perhaps even adapt faster and shortcut that time period. Would you say that's accurate? Yes. For example, I have a local company that sells bulk seeds and they sell bulk seed of varieties that are known to do well in our area. Um, they also sell varieties that are known not to do well in our area, but, <laughs> you, you know, overall, they have selected for varieties that we know and love. And also, I love collecting seeds from uh, producers only farmers markets because they have grown at least one generation already in our area, you know? And so those are, and so if we can start with varieties that are known to do well in our area, or another thing, if you have a variety that you've grown for years and you love it, and maybe you've even been saving seeds from it, and then you throw a second or a third variety next to it and even if the new varieties don't do good, they might share a little bit of pollen. And so that can really help to jumpstart this type of growing. Yeah, uh, even right there, just, just getting something that has grown one season, one full season successfully in your area is already shortcutting one of those three re reproduction cycles. That's massive. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's really important. And you could probably even start to go beyond the learning that's in the genetics of those and talk to the person who grew them and say, you know, what are the characteristics of this? How does it stack up with other things that you've grown? What are the challenges? What are the advantages? And then work from there. Mm -hmm. That's something that I really started here in my area because I'm definitely new to Spain and to Catalonia. And because of the unique growing conditions that we have, I have really been speaking with my neighbors, many of whom are quite avid gardeners and have been for quite a number of years. And they've been very generous in offering me uh, seed starts at the beginning of the season and talking about the challenges here, which has, I mean, helped me to skip probably years of trial and error that I would have had <laughs> otherwise. Plus it's just right. a great way to make friends around here. 
community is really important in that way. And also, if we start with crops that are promiscuous to start with, um, then it's easier to grow land race style than it is with crops that are highly inbreeding. For example, crops that are good to work with in the beginning are, would be squash, melons, corn, um, like the fava beans and the runner beans, because th they all have uh, cross-pollination tendencies. And so those are great crops to work with. Um, the brassicas are good crops to work with if you only use open pollinated varieties or heirloom varieties. And spinach is a great crop because it's 100% outcrossing. Um, some of the crops that are harder to work with would be like the dry bush beans because they're mostly inbreeding. Lettuce is mostly inbreeding. Yeah, it's good to know that when you're getting started so you can get a couple of quick wins and not get discouraged <laughs> you keep going. Yeah, I, I'm fortunate that I started with corn as my first crop and then my second crop was uh, muskmelons. Mm. Yeah, those are both sound really rewarding. I haven't grown corn since I was in Guatemala when we had our little farm back then, but that was mm -hmm. part of the program that we started at that farm to save seed and exchange it with the the local community around there which has been doing so for hundreds of years which kind of brings me back to the fact that one thing that gave me confidence to start trying this myself is that this has been going on for hundreds if not thousands of years and you know it's potentially even how agriculture got started in the first place by uh -huh. <laughs> plants that like oh these are good i'll favor these i'll, I'll at least save the seed and maybe bring it with me and see how it does you know either consciously or unconsciously. And these were not highly educated PhD plant breeders <laughs> that selected for various traits with microscopes. These were mostly illiterate uh, farming peasants as we would call them. And they are behind pretty much every single cultivar that we now value in our food chain. It, it, exactly. Um, the secret to, to plant breeding is that plants make seeds and children tend to resemble their parents and their grandparents. And so if you select for great varieties, if two great varieties cross with each other, you will tend to get great offspring. You know, and that's about the extent of genetic knowledge that we need to, to be doing this kind of work. Uh, it's so empowering because the way that it's talked about in plant breeding circles, I mean, they have it down to such a micromanaged science <laughs> that it seems unapproachable to anybody without a higher level degree, incredibly sophisticated equipment, massive amounts of space for isolation distance, right? And all of this just gets thrown out of the window. And the determining factor is what, what do you want to see more of? What do you like uh -huh. you want to put in the ground next year? I love that. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but so that does lead me to another question is with all of these land race trials and projects that you're involved in, we'll, we'll talk about some specifically in a minute. What sort of organization and methodology do you use to maintain these and ensure that you keep all of this genetic material straight in your head? I mean, some cycle and paying attention is required for this to go well, right? Well, <laughs> before I before I was a plant breeder, I was a chemist. Mm. 
-hmm. and I worked in a in a chemical laboratory and I kept meticulous records and you know and so when I started plant breeding I did the same thing I kept detailed meticulous careful records and it drove me crazy because when you start if you're just inbreeding something, then no big deal to keep a record. Mm -hmm. But when you start into promiscuous pollination and there's thousands of, of genetic combinations going on and it, it was just overwhelming. Yeah. So I stopped keeping records at all. Um, the one record I keep is I keep uh, the variety name and the date that it was harvested. Mm -hmm. and a I lot mean, of times I a bunch of little completely different seeds within it and it's only selected by what would you say like maybe small tomatoes 2023 uh-huh exactly um, and with in in general like with my my dry bush beans I just have one container and it only has the date on it because I can look at it and I can tell it's a dry bush bean, mm -hmm. you know? And, and so, but with tomatoes, I might make a note on my seed packet that this was an extra special mother for some reason or other. It had a trait that I want to carry on for next year, but I will only save like, 10 packets of tomato seeds during a year even if i grow 200 mothers and i save the seeds from 200 mothers and there might be 10 or 20 that are you know have a trait that i want to carry on but other than that i am not keeping records because the records are basically exist within the seed itself mm -hmm. and and so yeah, the record keeping just didn't work for me. <laughs> <laughs> I think I would tend towards that way too. I mean, I, I am quite organized and keep records of a lot of things. But when you're dealing with the complexity of genetic information and open pollinated plants, I mean, that would be like mapping the genome of the offspring of your livestock. You know, it's a level uh -huh. <laughs> Yeah, you perhaps could go through all the effort of of keeping track of and organizing, but it's kind of not the point either. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, I could keep a few more records than I do, and it would be helpful to me. Uh, for example, I could keep a, a planting map. So at least I know what I planted where. So instead of depending on my memory to be able to sure. ID what, what it was. And so, I could keep a few more records, but I had notebooks that are like hundreds of pages and never looked at them after I made it. Uh, what happened to me that really broke me on that is I had been working in the garden one day and I realized I had spent more time record keeping than I had farming. Yeah. You know, and, and so I'm like, I'm not keeping any more records because I can grow twice as much food for the same labor or the way that I did it as I grew the same amount of food for half the labor. There you go. <laughs> you know, that, that let me be able to play and dance and go to the hot spring and visit friends. And <laughs> oh, Contributes so much more to your quality of life than having meticulous records, I'm sure. 
And it's really important to take some time to reflect every now and then is the management style that you are practicing, achieving the larger quality of life that you care to have, not necessarily right. just one minute little uh, thing that you may be optimizing for at the expense of your happiness, your well-being, your connection with family and community, which for most mm -hmm. of us are far more important. Yeah. And so another thing regarding community is we have festivals in my garden. We'll have a planting festival and a harvest festival. Um, I'd invite my friends out, my community. You know, they, they helped me plant this stuff. They helped me harvest this stuff. And so it becomes their stuff as well as my stuff, you know, and, and it just becomes a beautiful journey rather than just a, I'm slugging away trying to make two bucks for my, you know, to pay a cell phone bill. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. That's really beautiful. That's something I aspire to start to build here. Uh, now that we're settled and I'm starting to put roots down again after almost 15 years of travel, <laughs> it's uh -huh. switch from being a constant guest to being the host again. And that's exactly the type of gathering and community that I hope to foster here. Mm -hmm. I'm curious too, from the variety of growing systems that you've seen, probably participated with, <laughs> And probably had, you know, people within your network tell you about, I mean, everyone seems to have their way of planting and gardening or, or farming. How does land-based gardening fit into the, the huge diversity of people's ways of doing things? So land-based gardening or the plants, genetically diverse plants that are cross-pollinating can adapt to whatever growing systems they encounter. And so like there's one, one seed company I, I went to visit and they grow over plastic, they grow under plastic, they irrigate with plastic. So their whole growing system is designed for growing on plastic. And what they are selecting for by in that growing system is they're growing for plastic culture. Mm. And so then when they send their seeds out to their customers, they're sending seeds out that are adapted to plastic instead of adapted to whatever growing system their customers are using. And I think that that particular company does a disservice to their customers by growing that kind of seed for them. Or at least not uh, putting that in the packet. Yeah, but if they were putting on the packet that this is specifically adapted to growing on plastic and they focused on customers that want to grow on plastic, you know, that would be a beautiful thing to do for your customers. Um, but I, I see that a lot in the in the seed industry. For example, a lot of my neighbors, they grow, they'll tell me that their varieties are failing for them. And I ask, where did you get your seed? Oh, I got it from this beautiful organic garden out in Oregon. And it's like, okay, 10 miles from the coast of Oregon and it's constantly damp. It's cloudy all year long. Uh, no wonder they fail for you when you get up here into the bright high altitude desert, you know, and, and so 
the plants will adapt to whatever growing systems that you happen to be using. And so I recommend that people don't change their beloved growing systems. They just keep growing like they've always grown and allow the plants to adapt to that kind of system. Um, for me, I don't like weeding. And so my plants have to adapt to weeding or, you know, to com competing with the, yeah. with the weeds. But what that does is when I send my plants to some garden where they actually care about it and they weed it, you know, the plants can just thrive because there's no mm -hmm. competition there. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the thing. So it, it sounds like there are certain things that you can select for that would make it difficult to adapt to other places, such as right. all plastic systems. Whereas there are traits that you could adapt for that would make it actually probably even excel more in places where there's higher maintenance. Like you said, that uh, being competitive with weeds, if you're managing your weeds and this variety is already competitive against them, it could do even better in your system since you're willing to go the extra mile and maintain it like that. Yeah. Well, one thing that I've noticed is that when I send my varieties to hot areas, they tend to thrive in the hot areas. And I think what I'm actually selecting for is resistance to stress more than uh, specific growing conditions. Um, but when I send my varieties to hot climates, they come up, they burst out of the ground, they grow like crazy, they produce a crop, and then they die because they don't have resistance to the, the molds and the fungus and whatever. Sure. But that's okay because you've already got a crop. Sure. And then in the hot areas, they can plant a second crop. Yeah. You, you know, and, and so, so they are widely adapted because of the, because of whatever mechanism is, is causing that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And the other thing that happens when I send them to other areas is that my varieties have so much genetic diversity that even if 80% of the crop fails, there's 20% of the crop that still has a memory from, you know, when it was growing in similar conditions a long time ago. And that also helps with um, like seasonal changes from year to year because some of my original varieties came from damp areas. Some of them came from dry areas. And so they still retain the genetic memory of how to deal with those, even if it takes a year or two to, you know, figure it out if something changes. And that can only be useful because from what I'm hearing from the farming community everywhere right now, is that the growing season could be starkly different now from year to year. And mm -hmm. more than adapted to a single climate or weather type, the flexibility is what is needed because you could get very rainy, even flood condition years, followed by three seasons of drought. And it's a lot to ask of a <laughs> plant to be able to produce and produce a high quality yield under such fluctuating conditions but that's really what is happening more and more frequently. And we need to have the adaptability in our cultivars to deal with it. Right. Well, the, the complaint I hear most commonly from uh, the big market farmers is that they will have 
the variety that they've been growing that's been doing great, one year we'll have a crop failure for whatever reason, you know, so it's a hundred percent crop failure. Yeah. And what I find with my land races is that if I have a crop failure, it's only a 30% crop failure, a 60% crop failure. So there's something in the population that will produce a harvest. Um, even if the harvest isn't as good as it would be in a dry year, a wet year. Yeah, that makes sense. Now let's talk about one of your favorite land race projects. And I'm talking, of course, about the beautifully promiscuous and tasty tomato project, which you outlined beautifully in the book. Maybe give me an overview of this project for the listeners, and then we can talk about where it's at currently. So I was all excited about land race growing and i thought i'm going to make the best land race tomato that i can possibly make and so i started breeding with tomatoes and nothing happened <laughs> it was just like they were they just they just you know they just wouldn't work very well with land race growing and so i and they didn't adapt to my garden and i'm I'm just like, what's going on here? And so I started doing the research and it turns out that the domestic tomatoes are so highly inbred that they don't have the ability to grow as a land race because what happened when tomatoes were domesticated is they started out in the Andes, they went up to Mexico, but only a few seeds went to Mexico. And then they went from Mexico over to Europe and only a few seeds went over to Europe. And then they went from Europe back to the rest of the world. But each time that they did that, they lost a tremendous amount of genetic diversity. And so like 95% of the genetic diversity of tomatoes got left in the wild. And that was genetic diversity for how to deal with the bugs and the diseases and the soils and the farmer's habits. And so I just couldn't do breeding with them because there wasn't enough genetic diversity to start with. And then I was in my garden one day and I noticed that there was a bumblebee that was buzzing just exactly one tomato plant out of the hundreds of plants in my garden there was one plant that was attracting bumblebees and i'm like oh we need to make the tomatoes promiscuously pollinating and so i figured out that there's some wild varieties of tomatoes in the andes that they have these huge super big flowers like um like palm-sized flowers you know just these beautiful flowers that attract pollinators and they're a hundred percent outcrossing and so i attained some of those seeds and made crosses with them in my garden and like some of the plants in my garden tomato plants grow about you know, five or six feet tall, even the indeterminates, because my season is so short. And some of those crosses I made, the vines are growing 30 feet long. Oh my goodness. And yeah, just these humongous, uh, thriving, you know, just, and the diversity of the leaf shapes, like on the, 
on the domestic tomatoes, you have like three or four leaf shapes. On the on these crosses with the wild tomatoes, there's you know dozens and dozens of leaf shapes. But the thing that enamored me with these was the flavors, and like the people are describing flavors of guava and plum and melon and sea urchin, you know, just all these wonderful, glorious flavors. And, and so I have stopped growing the domestic tomatoes to grow these wild tomatoes and I'm, I'm selecting for beautiful flavors and, and, and just having a, a lovely time at it. And eventually I'll get that 100% outcrossing trait stabilized so that the plants can rapidly adapt to whatever climate they're moving to or whatever growing system they're in. And I think that, that this year I'm finally about there on that, on that breeding system. So it's, it's been really joyful for me. <laughs> That's so exciting. And it sounds from the book that you've got quite a community participating in this with you. How is how have they been taking this forward? Well, better than I can. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I'm really good at coming up with ideas about how we should be doing things. But other people are better farmers than me, you <laughs> know, and, and, and more meticulous on making specific cross-pollinations because mm -hmm. my cross-pollination strategy is I'm allowing the bumblebees to do it mm -hmm. you know and then I just pay attention but but some of my collaborators you know they're doing the careful work of you know screening to make sure that traits are what they are uh, you know what they want them to be and so so the community collaboration has been really wonderful um some of some of my varieties are in final trials before some major seed companies are going to release them oh wow and and so you know that that's been joyful and um yeah just just having a good time with the community collaboration on this that's wonderful. And I also remember from the book that you have land race gardening in your lineage. Tell me about Loft House. Is it <laughs> yeah, so in about 1880, my grandfather saw a one wheat plant in his, in his field that was growing much more robustly than any of the other um, varieties. And so he took it to his home garden and he he reproduced it and it ended up and it, so it was a land race variety you know it was cross pollinating and it ended up becoming the most widely planted wheat in northern utah and southern idaho because it really thrived here mm -hmm. and then that lasted up until about 19 40, 50, you know, right after World War II when the chemical farming came in. Um, and so I still benefit from his good reputation as a plant breeder. <laughs> That's excellent. That's just a cool thing to find out in your past when you rediscover the love for working with the genetic possibilities of the plants that you have and realizing that 
this has been in your family for a while. Right. Now, we talked a little bit about this before the interview in that I'm going to be focusing a lot on tree breeding. And uh-huh. you promised to tell me a bit about your experience and some advice you have from breeding trees and other perennial crops as well in this land race method. Uh-huh. So before we get to trees, what if we talk about uh, Jerusalem artichokes? Okay, let's do it. <laughs> got some so, growing outside right now. Yeah, so, so people were always telling me you can't grow you can't breed with Jerusalem artichokes because they're sterile, you know? And, and I'm like, well, mine are producing seeds. So that's not true, <laughs> you know, but, but what happens is, is Jerusalem artichokes are self sterile. So they need a different variety that they're not closely related to for cross pollination to occur. And, so I got some uh, Jerusalem artichokes and cross-pollinated some wild strains with my favorite domestic strain and then planted the seedlings and, and um, selected the best 10% of those to make the next generation. And so I just continued that way and because they're a clone, then I was able to take my favorite clones and just propagate them. And But I had to plant the Jerusalem artichokes in a different location each year so I could tell the difference between the clone and the, the new seedling. And that ended up contaminating my whole garden with Jerusalem artichoke seedlings. <laughs> you, you know, and so... So I'm, I still haven't got rid of any of those original patches, but I do have my, my row, which I grow as a perennial and, and I just grow clones and then I save seeds off of the clones and I could replant those if I wanted to, but mostly I just send the seeds out into the world and other people can continue my work that way. But with trees, I'm growing I love growing trees from seeds because they're much, I find they're much more adapted to my climate than the, the trees I get from, mm, I want to rephrase that. If I grow a seed from tree and it survives my climate in the first year or two, then it's much more adapted to my climate than the trees that I buy from the seed companies. Mm-hmm. And, and so then I allow those seed seeds to cross pollinate with each, or those trees to cross pollinate with each other, plant the offspring. And then I get again, offspring that are much more adapted to my climate. Um, about, Oh, 50, 60 years ago, my family started a walnut breeding project. And that was about uh, 25 miles away and 500 feet lower in elevation. So it was a, it's in a different climate zone. And so, so Walnuts in my climate zone are just outside of the climate zone where where they're winter hardy. Mm-hmm. So 
but we grew two generations over in that other, that lower elevation garden. And I brought hundreds of seedlings over to, over to my garden. And a few of them survived. And that was like 15 years ago and they're currently producing seeds. And so in basically two generations, three generations, I guess, we were able to move the trees one climate zone cooler. And that's not insignificant. Yeah. And so that such a short time. Yeah. With the fourth generation that I'm currently working on, I'm moving them again, one climate zone higher in elevation. Wow. And so, so that's been really joyful. And the, the thing about my favorite parent, or my favorite parent of the third generation is that it doesn't have the bitter taste that walnuts usually have. It's just a sweet, uh, a sweet nut instead of a sweet plus the bitter. Yeah. And yeah. so, I, so I'm really happy about that. And if I was a, a good plant breeder, I would propagate that by cloning or something and get that that trait to someone that cares about it yeah. but oh well <laughs> <laughs> well all the more and, reason for everybody else to get involved if that's what you want to do with it there's definitely the opportunity you just need the patience yeah and also i'm breeding i'm currently working on a walnut breeding project um when my daddy was a child him and his cousin would go up into the mountain next to our house and they'd have wal or apricot fights with each other. And some of those apricots actually survived. Wow. And, and so where my daddy and his cousin were fighting, there's now an apricot um, grove, you know, 70 years later. And, and, and so I'm continuing the same sort of thing of, planting seedlings and allowing them to grow up and I planted like 30 apricot seedlings a dozen well that math doesn't work out but whatever like <laughs> a dozen a dozen from each of three different trees and what I found is that two of the trees are really thrived here there are two two of the sibling groups really thrived here and one of them was totally not winter hardy at all. And so, so I have like 15 trees left and, and took the two of those and moved them to a different field so that the two best can cross pollinate with each other. And then we'll, we'll just go the next generation and apricots are nice because they're only about five years, uh, a five year generation time. Yeah. Where the, the walnuts are about 15. And so it's a lot slower project with the walnuts. Sure, sure. I mean, this ends up being a legacy, much like you talked about this being in your family for some 60 years. Uh -huh. I can't imagine the pride and the honor you must feel of, <laughs> part of continuing something like this. That's epic. Well, yeah, and also in my ecosystem, there are plums 
that were brought here by the pioneers 160 years ago or however long it's been and they're growing wild along the ditch banks mm -hmm. you know and so i'm also working with those trees you know doing a next generation that's actually intentional you know i'm thinking about it selecting for what offspring i like because they already have the winter hardiness down they you know they can deal with the bugs and the the soil and so now i get to select for for flavor and growth characteristics that i like and so so there's a lot of opportunity for legacy plant breeding and for being a part of you know a continuing community that's been going on for 100 years even if i'm not aware of the particulars of it indeed and you've done quite a lot in collaboration with julia dakin who i've had on the show recently uh -huh. a couple of weeks ago in expanding the community to the online space creating a free online course on how to start and maintain land race projects as well as opportunities for participants to exchange seed. Can you talk about that project, Lou? So after I wrote my book, this lady sends me an email and she says, oh, I want to make a video course about your book. And I'm like, whatever, you can come and film in my garden. <laughs> <laughs> and so she came up and she filmed for a couple days in my garden. And then I went to California and we filmed for a couple of days in her garden and we met at seed conferences and she filmed some more. And so, so she made a beautiful video course about my book that basically uh, is the interactive or not the interactive, the, you know, the video, see my beautiful face kind of thing that, that happened in the, can happen online and she did beautiful job editing it and and then that video course attracted people that are interested in land race gardening and some of them are collaborators that I've had for you know 10 years and so we just had a beautiful time making an online community and about or over the years I've been um chatting with one of my dear friends about how can we actually share land race seeds with our our communities and how can we do this like make a seed bank and you know that kind of thing and so going to seed was organized uh url is going to seed.org and we have an online seed share where we're sharing land race seeds um we have the video courses there and we also have an online community where we collaborate and we chat with each other about these principles and so so i just felt honored that you know that that community sprung up around my book and um i really spend a lot of my time and my my emotional energy on taking care of that community and nurturing it and thinking about how I can improve people's lives. 
You do a great job, both you and Julia there. I'm a part of the community. I've been enjoying the course immensely, and it is a very great accompaniment to the book. I really recommend it to people, and I'll put the link in the show notes here. Um, but like, kind of to go along with what you were talking about with the tomato breeding project, are there any other land race projects that you're trialing right now that perhaps haven't made it into the book yet, that are still in initial phases, or that you're really excited about at the moment? Well, so we were interested in uh, growing a gourd species, which is called Cucurbita fissifolia, or the fig-leafed gourd. And seeds from that were not available from the GRIN, which is a seed bank that we use here in the United States. And so we wrote to the the curator of those seeds and we asked you know can we get seeds can we grow seeds out for you and so we're currently growing seeds out for that species to try to increase their seed stock so that they can share the seeds more widely and and that's been exciting to watch where a, a small group of gardeners can you know help uh a national seed bank. Yeah, it's it's wonderful how approachable and how many opportunities to participate in this there are for just about anybody, even if you're completely new to this. I mean, getting right. started can get your foot in the door and have you contributing meaningfully to the expansion of the genetic possibility of all of our cultivars and even introducing new ones within a couple of growing seasons. It's really inspiring. Yeah, and the other project that that I worked on last last summer is one of the seed. Well, so when I was a child, the Gurney Seed Company offered what they call a one cent seed packet, and it was basically I think they swept their floor and whatever <laughs> seeds fell on the floor, they put it in a packet and they sold it to kids, and I I plant. I planted that packet when I was like five years old and I remember there was a nasturtium seed in it and that big, huge seed was just so amazing. And, and that was my favorite seed I ever planted in my whole life. And then there was a corn and a squash and some flowers and whatever else was in it. And so when we did our seed swap, um, with going to seed, I says, I want to have a, you know, a packet of seeds like that. And so anything that people had to share that wasn't, you know, corn, beans, or squash that we were officially uh, working with, I said, you can send the seed to me. I'll mix it all together and send it back out. And so that ended up having about 50 species in it. Wow. You know, and so just, just joyful and happy and, and, I'm really content about that seed packet as well, because people are going to get to try varieties that they never tried before, species that they never tried before, and and they might find something that really thrives for them. Oh, I love that. That's such a great idea and a little small initiative that, you know, it, it takes some imagination and some creativity to think up, but could probably mean the world to somebody receiving it and open up a whole new world of possibilities for them. Along those lines, 
what are some other things that you're doing to engage and activate the community around you? You talked about some events that you've got going on your farm. How can people connect with you both online and in person coming up? Um, so I'm having a garden party on August 19th and people are coming from all over, uh, from far away to, to visit us in the garden. And that's, I chose that date because that's when my garden is the most beautiful and I have the most produce mm. and also the most weeds, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> that, that's part of my characteristic. And then I go to, to seed conferences once in a while. I might end up in uh, Ventura, California for the Heirloom Seed Expo this year. Um, and... I get around as I can. <laughs> that is wonderful. Well, look, Joseph, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time, not only to write the book, but to be here and share some of your stories and your knowledge here on the podcast. And also for the very unique attitude and mindset that you bring to this, the laid back, motivated by enjoyment and connection and relationship, I find really inspiring. And I mean, I'm, I'm just a big fan of your work and appreciate the time and the effort you've put into this. Uh, thank you, Oliver. It's been a joy chatting with you. <laughs> well, I look forward to staying in touch. I'm definitely going to bounce some ideas off you once I get my nursery started and the market garden kicks off a bit better next season. Now that I've got my fences up and keep the wild boar out. Uh, we'll see. Maybe I can even breed for something that's resistant to wild boar. <laughs> that would be the next year. That frightens me, the thought of a <laughs> boar. poisonous. you got to be careful of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, either way, I'll keep you posted. Thanks again for right. your time, and we'll be in touch. Thank you, Oliver. Thanks once again to Joseph. I've posted all the links to both his book and the free online course and community at Going to Seed in the show notes for this episode on our website at regenerativeskills.com. Now, before we wrap this up, just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the learning resources, design and coaching services, in-person courses, and interactive community that are available through Regenerative Skills. The Discord server is our free community where you can connect with other like-minded listeners, exchange ideas, stories, tips, and resources, as well as interact with me directly and quite a few former guests from this show. Our Instagram account, at regen underscore skills, is the best place to see the projects that me and the team are working on, both for clients and collaborators, as well as on our own properties. I'll also be announcing the certification courses, workshops, and gatherings that we've got coming up later this year. If you're interested in getting dedicated support for your own project, you can now schedule a free planning session with one of our team members through the request form on our website. You can also find all the links, show notes, and past resources there at regenerativeskills.com. We truly believe that no matter your experience, your knowledge, abilities, resources, or background, you can be a powerful force for regeneration on this planet, and we're here to help you find your path. So as always, remember to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.